Thanksgiving is one of the most difficult things I think that we can do in life. And um, giving thanks is actually a phrase that we read in the Bible over 73 times. Um, And I believe uh, in the passage we're going to read today, and I believe that God calls us to have grateful hearts as people. And um, oftentimes life throws obstacles and curveballs our way, and we wonder how on earth... Can I be grateful? How am I supposed to give thanks in the middle of this season? But I believe this morning that God's got a word for us, and His word is truth. Uh, we believe that here. And so this morning, uh, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 17 uh, through 18. Um, I think it's important in life uh, that we set goals as well. And oftentimes, it's important for us to find the balance between setting goals that are possible um, and goals that are impossible, and finding the right balance in that. A good goal uh, will stretch you. It's going to challenge you, but it has to be possible, something that you can achieve and attain. And so a goal that is impossible is one that no one will try. Uh, no one will work towards, at least seriously. So in my life, if you were to ask me to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope, I am not going to put one foot on that wire and try to do that because for me that's impossible. I have terrible balance. Okay, If you ask me to jump across a 30-foot cavern, um, again, not going to try that. I don't even think I can jump 10 feet. Um, That would be impossible for me to jump 30 feet across a cavern. But if you ask me to hit a golf ball 230 yards onto a small green that's surrounded by water and get the ball to stop within 20 feet of the pin, that's really difficult, but I would try it because I've done it before and I've seen it happen. It's possible. It's something that I would give a shot, something that I would try to do. And so often in our lives and in our faith, we pick up the Bible and we read it and we get overwhelmed uh, by what we read. And we get overwhelmed at the thought of how is this going to apply to my life. And we go and we say, okay, the Bible tells me to be patient, so I'm going to go and try to do that. And we get overwhelmed. We find out it's difficult. So with patience, we read in the Bible, okay, God, you want me to be patient? And so I read that in my devotion in the morning, and then I pray, and I said, you know what, that's a fruit of the Spirit, so I should probably do it. Sounds pretty easy. So I pray and say, God... I see you want me to be patient, so I'm going to ask for you to make me patient. And you pray, say amen, you get ready, jump in the car and you go to work and you turn on to 68th Street. And not even 10 minutes after you pray, you're following somebody going 45 miles an hour down 68th Street. Alright, talk about slow. The speed limit's 55, I believe, on 68th Street. And so how do you respond in this moment? probably like any sane person would do, and you sigh, and you begin to complain about how the person in front of you is going so slow. You contemplate passing them, only to realize you're on 68th Street, and passing anybody is impossible because of all the traffic. So you get frustrated. And then two painful, slow miles down the road, you realize, oh yeah, I prayed for patience this morning. Failed that one. 
Okay? And I think that sometimes we realize and we say, you know what? It's difficult. It's hard. Is it even worth trying? Is it even worth attempting? Um, we're never, ever going to attempt the impossible. Nobody's going to do that because it's a waste of time. But what's possible, I think we will try and we will work towards. And I think here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul has given us three challenges that on the surface may seem impossible, but I believe are very possible. And I think if we follow these three challenges, it will help us to develop a grateful heart in our lives and thus honor God through that. And so I'm going to read uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'm actually going to start in verse 12 here um, and read through the end of the chapter. And it says, Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other, and we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone, and make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with content. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. And may God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. And brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. And I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so this is God's word to us this morning. And I believe that this word is here to give us life and to help us point to the abundant life that Jesus has to offer us. And so this morning, we're going to hone in on verses uh, 16 through 18. If you could switch the computer over. Thanks. Um, And it says, rejoice always. Our version says, um, be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Three imperatives, three commands that Paul gives us here. Rejoice always. Pray continually. And give thanks in all circumstances. Always. Continually, in all circumstances. Seems difficult. Seems impossible. But are they? I think they're possible. I think we can do them. And so the first command we have here that Paul gives us is to rejoice always or to be joyful always. Now, we're all aware life is difficult sometimes. So how do we do this? How do we rejoice always? The early Christians uh, that Paul was writing to here had it very difficult. There could be persecution from the Jewish authorities. There could be persecution from the Roman authorities. There was division within families. Sometimes um, a Christian's unwillingness to belong to a trade guild in that time meant that they could no longer earn money with the trades that they had trained in their entire lives. Okay, so they had no way to generate income. These were real-life experiences for the Christians in Thessalonica that Paul's writing to here. And in the earliest days, 
We read in the book of Acts that it was difficult for Paul and Silas to share the gospel here to these people. And Acts will tell us that Paul and Silas nearly lost their lives simply taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people in Thessalonica. And they had, they got there, they shared the gospel, and they had to escape the city under the cover of darkness. And even then, the Jewish authorities sent people after them to the next town and found them and riled up the next city um, in order to persecute them further. And later, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and he said, he told them this in chapter 1, he says, um, you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering. And that he had brought the gospel to them in the face of opposition. It had been hard for Paul to plant a church there. It was hard for him to rile up Christians, to, to convert people to following Jesus Christ. And it was difficult. And he goes on to say in chapter 2, You brothers and sisters became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. So in other words, these Christians had experienced neighbors who had turned on them. Neighbors that used to be friendly and welcoming and loving had turned on them. And become their persecutors. Okay, that must have been difficult to see friends turn their backs on them. But the Christians here, they didn't give up. And Paul commends them for that. And he talks about their endurance. He talks about how they had become a model for all the Christians everywhere. Because of their faith in their Lord Jesus. Their unwillingness to give up. He said, you guys have held strong and you have become a model for what being a Christian looks like. And so in the hard places, this was a hard place to be a Christian. It was a hard place to follow Jesus. Life was difficult. There was a lot of brokenness around these Christians. And it was to people like this that Paul said, rejoice always. Because through their trials, they had become stronger Christians. They would become better followers of Jesus Christ. And first... Um, Paul here, he's not talking about rejoicing always in the sense that we need to have a permanent happiness, this superficial kind that makes you angry. We all know people like this that no matter what happens, they always just seem angry and you can tell it's fake. Or they always seem happy and you can tell it's fake. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not always talking about laughing and smiling and whistling and carrying on. But Paul here, he's talking about something deeper, as he often does. He's calling us to something that leads to contentment in life. He's calling them to rely on God's grace, to drawing on God's strength, being filled with God's hope, um, being destined and remembering that they're about to spend eternity in God's presence. He's pointing them towards their need for a bigger perspective. For something more. And saying, look beyond your current circumstances. Look to the hope and the certainty of what you have gained already because of what Jesus has done. Because of your faith in Him. But how does anyone get to this level of contentment that Paul's calling us to? To rejoice always. How do we do this? How did those Christians do it? It's because they were shaped by the things that they went through. 
They were shaped by the things that they went through. And this is difficult, but it's a concept, I believe, that's traced all the way throughout the New Testament. And James said in his letter, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And in Romans, Paul writes, We also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope and so throughout the bible we see that the difficult things that we go through in life are what help shape and refine us they take the finest deepest parts of our character and who we are and they're formed because of the things that we struggle with the hard things they shape us they make us better people they make us look more like jesus When I was in high school, one of my best friend's uh, grandma received uh, some pretty bad news. I think it was my uh, junior year of high school. And her name was Joyce. And she received a diagnosis of cancer. And that alone will rock your world. But Joyce was also told that she only had a few months to live at this point. And no one would have blamed Joyce um, if she had complained long and hard about her misfortune, about how she was going through the situation. She wasn't very old. She was in her late 60s. But now her life on earth was drawing to an end at this point. And Joyce didn't complain, though. She was in pain often. And as time went on, she gradually grew more and more disabled because of the cancer that she had. And it was robbing her of strength and energy. But Joyce, true to her character and true to her form, she didn't focus on the things that she was losing. She wasn't focused on that immediate circumstance. Instead, she was focused on the thankfulness for all the good years that God had given her. She was reflecting on that. She was thankful for the anticipation of being in heaven with the Lord, spending eternity in God's presence. I remember going to Joyce's house a few times for lunch uh, during the school year with my friend, and every single time, I remember walking away, and every conversation that I had with her was filled with gratitude to God. That was her heart. That was her motivation. She was thankful for the life that God had given her, the joy in the goodness of God that she had experienced, her confidence in the eternal life that she was about to experience. And I didn't realize it at the time, but now I do, is that Joyce's mindset, her perspective affected me. And it changed me in the way that I see things. And I would leave Joyce's house um, excited about God, excited about the future, excited about what God had done in my life. And I remember going to Joyce's funeral, and it was a celebration of joy. It was a celebration of her life, of the goodness of the Lord. And in large part, it was because Joy, Joyce had experienced what she had. She suffered in the ways that she did, that she ended up living the life and dying in grace and dying in thankfulness. And so like Joyce, like these Thessalonians, I believe that if we allow God to mold us in the trials and circumstances, we don't have to, but if we allow God to do that, If we turn our attention to the Lord and say, God, what are you trying to teach me right now? What are you showing me? Show me your goodness. I believe that God will shape us and he will mold us. Second thing. 
How do we develop a grateful heart? Rejoice always. The second, pray continually. Is this possible? Praying continually. I've always hoped that it is because then I could boast that I get at least eight hours of prayer in at night while I'm sleeping. If I'm praying continually. But I don't think that's true. The word here that Paul uses, the Greek word, is called prosukome. Okay, prosukome, and that's actually a combination of two words. The first word means to face in a direction, and the second is to speak out loud. Okay, and so basically what Paul's word here is for prayer, what it means is to turn to God and share your thoughts, your needs, and your desires with Him. So prosukome does mean to pray, but it also means to bring the entirety of who you are the entirety of your life before God and offer it to Him. So how do we do that continually? Praying without a break, praying without ceasing, seems to um, elude and rule out sleeping and eating and all the other important parts of life that we're supposed to do. But is that what Paul's really talking about here? Some theologians think that Paul here, when he says continually, is talking about repetition. So continually coming back to God in prayer throughout your day. Others believe that it's possible that when Paul talks about praying constantly or praying continually, that he doesn't, that he means it much in the same way that I would say that I love my wife. Just because I love my wife doesn't mean that I gaze into her eyes all day and I sigh because I'm in her presence and I'm happy because of that. That's not what it means to love my wife. But instead, I leave the house. I still notice when I'm driving, if the light at the intersection is red or green. I still eat lunch. I still concentrate on work and other aspects of life. But none of that changes the fact that I love my wife. It's always there. It affects every part of my life. It affects my decisions, my motives, my plans. My love for her is constant. And I think that maybe that is what Paul is talking about here when he says pray continually. What's motivating you? What's affecting and driving your decisions, your plans? Our love for God, our turning to God, being in His presence, seeking His will, and drawing on His strength can be and should be constant in our life doesn't mean you always have to sit down and pray and close your eyes. But it's that constant going back to. It's that constant remembering of who's in charge of your life and who's in control. In my studies, um, Nicholas Ehrman from Lorraine, a region of France, um, he joined a Carmelite community in Paris in the year 1666. And he became known as Brother Lawrence. And there's a record of all his letters and conversations that was brought together um, into a book that's called The Practice of the Presence of God. And he writes two things, and I want to read two things from this book. And it says this, There's not in this world a kind of life more sweet and more delightful than that of a continual walk with God. And only those who practice and experience it can comprehend it. We cannot escape the dangers which abound in life without actual and continual help of God. And let us then pray to Him for it continually. 
How can we pray to Him without being with Him? How can we be with Him but in thinking of Him often? And how can we have Him often in our thoughts unless by a holy habit of thought which we should form? And so for Brother Lawrence, what he believed, whatever he did, wherever he went, no matter what circumstances in life, he strove to live in the presence of God. That was his calling. That's what he was aiming to do. Sharing his needs and listening to God's Word for him. He dwelled. It was a habit, a process that he went through. And Paul here, he urges us, and he's saying that if we're to continue to come before God continuously, we're going to have to be disciplined. We're going to have to be focused. We're going to have to be concentrated. And we're going to have to be intentional about controlling the distractions of life. We live in a world that is packed full of things that could push God aside and do push God aside. Work, school, money, sports, personal time, family, shopping, Netflix, TV, the news, politics, social media, the internet. The list goes on and on and on. And these are all things that aren't bad in and of themselves but I believe that Satan uses to distract us and to pull us away from God. And so if we're going to pray continually, we have to be intentional. We have to live our lives, our desires, our concerns. We need to go to God. We need to take those things to God over and over again. And the third thing here that Paul commands us to do, he says to give thanks in all circumstances. And I think this might be the most difficult Because the question immediately comes to mind, so Ian, are you saying that we should thank God for absolutely everything in the world, no matter how evil or hostile it is? Are we supposed to thank God for those things? For those circumstances? Paul, he wrote about being thrown in prison. He wrote about being whipped and beaten for the gospel. He wrote about being hit with stones and shipwrecked and going without sleep and without food, going without warmth or clothes. Not for a moment, I believe that Paul welcomed those things. He suffered badly. He nearly died multiple times. That was not good. There are things in this world that are not good, that are evil. The command here to give thanks in all circumstances doesn't require us to jump through some intellectual hoop and do some spiritual gymnastics to believe that everything on earth is good. That's not what it's saying here. But what it is saying is that there is never a time in our lives in which we cannot be thankful. Even when we're facing the worst of circumstances, it is possible. How do we give thanks... How do we give thanks in all circumstances? The first is because we know that God is there too with us. Paul, Silas, they were thrown into prison in Philippi. They were chained up by their ankles, seemingly left to die. And what did they do in those moments? They sang hymns and they praised God. Why? Because they knew that God had not abandoned them. They knew that God was with them, that they weren't alone. And at that exact moment, they probably didn't see anything good about their life. Nothing good about their circumstances. But God was there with them. And because God was there with them, they knew that they had hope. That there was a future for them. And because of that, they praised God. 
Second thing, how do we give thanks in all circumstances? It's for this reason, because there's no circumstance that God cannot use for his own purposes. Shortly after they were imprisoned, um, Paul and Silas, they were singing. I don't think that they sang terribly, but the next thing that happened was an earthquake. So maybe their singing caused an earthquake? I don't know. Um, that's not in the Bible, so it's left to interpretation, I think. But, um, but the Philippine prison, there was this huge earthquake, and the prison almost fell to the ground. Okay, it collapsed. The doors were burst open, but no prisoner escaped. And Paul and Silas, what did they do in this moment? They sat and they waited to see what God was going to do. They said, God, you've got to be at work here because this earthquake just destroyed our prison. What's going on? The jailer comes rushing in, and he's freaking out because he thinks all the prisoners were gone. And that time, if that jailer had lost his prisoners, he would be put to death. So that jailer was about to kill himself, and Paul saw him, and he stopped him. And that moment opened an opportunity for Paul and Silas to share the gospel with this jailer, and later on with the rest of his family, and they were baptized and became followers of Jesus Christ that same night. God used a terrible situation for good. What is truly bad, God can use for something truly good. Okay? There's never a circumstance that God cannot use. Third thing, how do we give thanks in all circumstances? Because God's wisdom is greater than our own. This is a picture um, of White Horse Hill. Um, it's located in Oxfordshire, England. And, and White Horse Hill gets its name because of the huge figure of this horse that was carved into the ground. The turf was actually taken out and it revealed this white chalky soil beneath it. And it shows this shape of a horse. And people believe that this carving dates all the way back to the late Bronze Era, somewhere between the years 1000 and 700 B.C., Hey, this carving is huge. It's 374 feet long. So it's longer than a football field. And that's big. The size, though, it presents a problem because when you're standing on the ground, all you see are these weird shapes and lines. And you don't really know quite what it is. I mean, if you're traveling there, you probably know that it's a horse. But if you were to stumble upon it for the first time, you would have no idea what this is why is why are these white paths carved on the ground when you look down at your feet you realize that the shape has been cut into the grass but all it is is a bunch of shapes all it is is lines and you wonder what's the purpose of this but it's when you go back up to a thousand feet above and you look down on this hill that you see the beauty of this carving that's been in this hillside for 3,000 years. Down at our ground level, we are too close to the events of our lives. Okay, we can't see how the different parts of it link together to create something bigger and something grander. There's no shape to them that we understand. But it's different from up above. It's different from a God perspective. It all makes perfect sense. And so what we can learn from this is that God's perspective 
is different. He knows what He's doing. He sees your life mapped out and He sees how the different parts work together for your good. And God promises that all things will work out for the good of those who love Him. And so if you're sitting here and you're in the midst of a difficult circumstance and you're saying, how on earth do I give thanks in this circumstance? You see a line. God sees the picture. Okay? Because of that, we can be grateful. In closing, um, this is hard. It's difficult to develop a grateful heart. Um, to get to a point in our lives where we can always be joyful, where we can pray continually, when we can give thanks in all circumstances, it's hard. It takes work. It takes discipline. But I believe it's possible. But I want to take a second and acknowledge something. As we enter into this holiday season, and, and I talk about this, and it's difficult, and you may be sitting there saying, Ian, I can't do that this season of life. Maybe, maybe the next season. For many of you, the holidays are your favorite time of the year. You get excited, you live for them, you live for the decorations and the food and the family time and the quality time that you get to spend together, the Christmas music that you've been playing since October 1st. Your cup overflows in this season. But I acknowledge that for some of you, the holidays are difficult. That you're dreading what's coming in the next couple weeks. Because some of you have been in a season of depression. Some of you enter into a season of depression every year, this time of year, because of what you don't have or you no longer do have. Thoughts of family gathering together, food being purchased, gifts being bought, it overwhelms you. It stresses you out. Because how are, how are we going to pay for these gifts? I can barely make ends meet throughout the year, and now I have to buy Christmas gifts. Maybe you're about to experience your first holiday season without a loved one. Or this is yet another year and another reminder of a loved one that's passed away. Maybe you're struggling personally. Maybe this year's been tough. It's been difficult. It's been hard on you. And you're at your end. And you don't want to face the holidays and the superficial happiness that comes along with it. I just want you to know this morning that I see you that I care about you and that I pray for you. And we as the leadership of the church, we pray for you and we love you. And know, know that I believe that this word that God has spoken to us this morning from 1 Thessalonians, I believe it's possible for you too. It's hard, it's difficult, but I believe it's possible. And I believe that's possible because the God that spoke this universe into existence is with you, He loves you. He's promised to never leave you or forsake you. And He's walking beside you in this season of life that you're in. I believe that this message of developing a grateful heart, being joyful always, praying continually and giving thanks is possible through and through. We're commanded to do this. God calls us to do this because we have much to be grateful for. And oftentimes... It's beyond our circumstances, and it's looking to God that has done great things in our lives. Verse 18 says, For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God longs to see you joyful. He longs for you to pray to Him. He longs for you to give thanks 
to Him. It's His will. And it, let me tell you, God knows exactly what He's doing. 